0: We begin at the beginning. So let me tell you a bit about why we're going to be looking at the first few chapters of Genesis in these first few weeks of 2023. Uh, So each year, our elders prayerfully set an annual priority or kind of a background theme, some key biblical truth that we want our church to grow in over the course of the year. For example, in 2022, our annual priority, if you remember, was treasuring church. It's all about strengthening our love and commitment to the local church as an expression of our love for Christ. So to that end, if you remember, we studied several New Testament letters like Colossians and Titus and other passages that underscored that theme. Now this year, our theme may take a little more explaining and it may run a little deeper in the background than the foreground at times, but there is a method to the madness. So in 2023, here's what we've set. We want to take one next step in God's disciple-making plan for the world by exploring what it means to live as created beings, as faithful Christians, and as a local church. So you've heard us use this one-next-step language recently. It's just shorthand for helping each person, wherever they might be on a spectrum of belief, from a skeptic to a seasoned believer, take one small step of faith or maturity towards Christ. So our hope for this year is both individual and collective. Here's what I mean. Individually, we hope that each person who attends North Wake, whether you're still considering Christianity and would not at this time identify even as a Christian, or maybe you're brand new to the faith, or maybe you're a veteran Christian who's been kind of sitting on the sidelines for a while, or maybe you're the person who's just ready to burst with spiritual vitality. And we have that whole spectrum of people represented here in attendance each week. We pray and hope that each person this year can sort out what their next step in faith and growth might be and that you would take it. This is part of what we mean when we say exploring what it means to live as created beings. This means we all have to find our place in a larger agenda set by God, not just living according to our own desires and plans. So we want each person here to situate themselves in God's agenda for the world and embrace your role and what he's up to individually but then also collectively as a local church we want to re-express and lean into who we are as a local church like what makes north wake distinctive what are we all about here and how do we all get on board with that together this will be ongoing work from the vine project that you've heard so much about that will come more apparent as we go through the year so this is kind of where we're headed this year all of us, one next step into God's disciple-making plan for the world by exploring what it means to live as created beings, as faithful Christians, and as a local church. So let me pray for us once more, and then we'll see how Genesis 1 fits into all this. So let's pray. Lord, even as now as we think back on the past year, We're we're overwhelmed with kind gifts that came from your good hand that we did not deserve. And yet, as we look back, we we are grieved also. We're grieved by loss, sinful choices, ours and others, that have made a mess of things. And yet, you have not left us or forsaken us. As your word says, because of your great love, we are not consumed. So as we turn to yet another year, would you lead us by your good hand and lead us this morning as we open your word now. Through Christ we pray, amen. One of my favorite um, youth ministry moments was when we took a handful of students to work with Chris and Rachel Conley in inner city Philadelphia. Now this may come as a shock to you, but inner city Philly is a little different from good old way here, you know. Uh, So some of our students, before the trip, they downloaded an app where you can see what crimes are being reported all around you at any given moment, real time. Now, Philly is a big city. There's a lot going on and plenty of crime to report. So this became big news, maybe even an unhealthy obsession on our trip. So one night as we're driving back in our passenger van to our Airbnb for the night, we come up on some sort of crime scene. Several cop cars are up ahead. There's lights flashing. And so all the students in the van, you know, they start checking the app to see what's up. And they didn't see anything. So they get all excited and say, keep going, keep going. We we slow down. You know, we could be the first ones to report this crime. And at this point, I'm kind of done with the crime app. And I maybe feel like we're starting to have a little too much excitement at the expense of someone else's real life pain, you know. So as we approach the crime scene, just as we're getting up to it and almost everyone is out of their seats uh, getting ready to like take pictures and, you know, figure out what's going on. I decide it would be a good idea to take a hard right onto a side street and peel off in a totally different direction. And at this point, I thought there was going to be a mutiny in the van. I mean, the groans, the cries, the threats. To turn this van around right now. I mean, it was great. And it's one of my prouder moments as a youth pastor. And as we pull up on Genesis 1 today, there's always a bunch of questions we tend to have as modern people. How old is the universe exactly? Were the seven days literal or is this figurative language? What about evolution and the fossil record? What about the dinosaurs? What about aliens? What about multiverses? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? And so forth. And on most of these questions, Genesis 1 takes a hard right and goes in a totally different direction. Not that it doesn't touch on these issues, and if you're the kind of person that's really intrigued by the scientific and biblical conundrums of Genesis 1, I'm glad to commend to you a book called 40 Questions on Creation and Evolution, co-authored by one of our very own Ken Keithley and edited by one of our very own Ben Merkel. Now, how cool is that? That I can rec- one of the best resources I can think of to recommend to you about questions on the beginning of Genesis and origins and evolution comes from two of our own church members. That's pretty cool. Uh, we'll also release a Northwake Church podcast on creation with Dr. Keithley tomorrow morning, Ken Keithley, if you'd like to listen to that. But for today, Genesis 1 and my sermon are largely going to take a hard right away from some of these very interesting yet peripheral questions and turn us directly to the God of Genesis chapter 1. It's a familiar passage to many of us, and yet this familiarity. I think can sometimes cause us to miss the beauty and simplicity and grandeur of how this passage introduces us to God. So I want to take the simplest of approaches today with this passage, and that's to use a basic Bible reading practice where you look at a passage and you see what gets most often repeated in the passage to draw out the truth of the passage. If you follow this, you know, this is a simple way of reading the Bible. When you read a stretch of of scripture, see what the author is repeating often to get the main thrust or idea. And if we do that here, I think we'll walk away with three fundamentals. Three fundamentals. First, God is first. Second, God is big. Third, God is love. God is first. God is big. God is love and i could use bigger words to make my points but i think part of the point of this passage is to keep things fundamental sometimes it's not the complicated things that trip us up in life it's just embracing the basics in this time of year my beloved bulldogs are in the home stretch for a national championship and you hear listen to any college football coach at halftime or the end of the game when they get asked questions by reporters you know how did your team get the win or what do you need to do to get your team back on track they almost always seem to say the same thing and it's never very surprising They're like, we just got to do the fundamentals better. Get back to tackling, catching, throwing the ball, keeping it simple. So that's our approach today. God is first. Notice the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And don't skip past this too quickly. In the story of the world as given to us by the Bible, God takes center stage right away. He's the subject of the first sentence. And again, if you look for what's repeated throughout the chapter that you heard Watson read just a few minutes ago, there was 25 verses. If you kept count, God was mentioned no less than 25 times. Even the very first Hebrew word of the Scripture, in beginning, several scholars point out that this Hebrew word carries with it a sense of the beginning of a story with an end not just the first thing in a series of events. Like if I begin speaking with the phrase, once upon a time in a land far away, then you know that I'm getting ready to tell you a story, one that's pre-written, that has a destination, a destiny even. So even at the beginning of the Bible, the reader is clued in that all of this is headed somewhere because it's a story written by God. Now, what does this mean for us? I think this is sometimes hard for us to hear. But this means that if your life was a TV show, you would not be the main character. Life is not your sitcom. And you're not the main character of the story. But this is hard for us. We inhabit an age of self-optimization. You know what I mean, right? Like, be your best self right now. Self-improvement, self-consciousness. Especially this time of year, you get hit with advertisements of all kinds for better exercise programs, gym memberships, hair products. Not me, but others. And, you, you know, get that next degree that you've been thinking about. I mean, is anybody? so has anybody made New Year's resolutions? I'm just always curious. I'm, this is just me as a, like, curious human being. Make resolutions? Anybody make resolutions still? Is that a thing of the past? like sort of a few people? Anybody broken them already? Just out also out of curiosity? No, doing pretty good? All right, you're eight days in, keep it up. So here's the most common New Year's resolutions, if you can see these. Number one, to exercise more. Shocker, number one. Number two, to eat healthier. Number three, to lose weight. Number four, to save more money. Five, spend more time with family and friends. Six, spend less time on social media. Seven, reduce stress on the job. Eight, reduce spending on living expenses. I said top ten, there were only eight. But by and large, I mean, the first three are always the big ones. Exercise more, eat healthier, lose weight. And these are not bad, of course. Taking better care of the body that, and life that God has given you is very important. But it is interesting that the top three, by a long shot, are always pretty individual, self-focused. This is kind of our go-to as modern Americans. We're deeply independent and individualistic. Me-first kind of people. We have a meocentric default orbit that all other things and plans and people and happenings must revolve around me. But you know, that's an awfully small orbit. I think it's a lot of pressure to be the center of the universe. It's exhausting. And so Genesis wants to begin our year by pulling us up out of our meocentric orbit into a theocentric orbit. Into a God-centered way of thinking and living that keeps the main character center stage. And it's not you. And it's not me. And I actually think that's a pretty kind thing of God to pull us back from center stage. He's not trying to insult you or denigrate you. It's just that you weren't made to carry the weight of running the show around here. It's freeing to realize that, well, like yes, I have a special part to play in what God's up to in the world. It's not the main part. And it doesn't all hinge on me. This is a video I have of a a magnetic or a magic globe, either one that you wanna believe is fine. Uh, uh, spinning in my office. It sits on my shelf, and it just spins around and around. People love to come in and touch it and knock it out of its thing, and it's really hard to put back, but it's okay. Um, It's just a reminder for me that when I leave my office, the world spins on. This world and this church are not dependent on me. I am not the center of orbit, and it will continue to spin long after I am gone. Do you have anything like this? Any ways to remind yourself of who the universe really revolves around? Do you have any way to relieve the pressure of thinking that it must all revolve around you? You need one. Maybe not a magnetic globe, but a phone reminder, a prayer, a place to walk and look up at the sky and remember who is first. God is first. Next, God is big. Watch this. than the measurements being in metric system, that probably means that video meant nothing to you, but (laughs) those numbers are really big. Our familiarity with this Genesis 1 passage is to our downfall because nature is awesome and the universe is just stinking huge. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen the President Joe Biden, I did that meme on stickers or billboards, you know, where the president's blamed for everything, like high gas prices and everything else bad in the last couple of years. Part of being president, I guess, you just get blamed for a lot of stuff. But in Genesis 1, you could proudly meme, God did that beside everything that's awesome. Skies and seas in Genesis 1, 6 through 7. God did that. Redwoods, dogwoods, lilies, and roses... Genesis 1, 9 through 11 says, God did that. Sun, moon, and stars. Genesis 1, 14 to 15 says, God did that. Selfish, dolphins, blue whales, and seahorses. Genesis 1, 20 to 21 says, God did that. Elephants, moose, meese, I don't know. Dogs, cats, maybe. Uh, Genesis 1, <laughs> 24 to 25 says, God did that. He takes a waste and shapeless world and forms it. He takes an empty and a dark world void and he fills it. And God doing this, he preparing and forming the land for life. It presses back against both ancient mythologies about how the world came to be and it pushes back on our modern narratives as well. Because think about it, to ancient peoples, the sun, the moon, and the stars, I mean, these were gods in and of themselves, But Genesis says, nope, God did that. Life and fertility for the ancient world, this was a secret and sacred process bound up with the underworld workings of gods and demigods who had to be begged and goaded with sacrifice to bring rains that would bring life. But Genesis says, nope, God did that. Life and growth are simply a gift from the hand of God to our world. And against the more modern narrative of our origins, Genesis says that we did not come about through a cold, random, impersonal, accidental process. The world was designed just right for us to exist and flourish here on this little speck of a planet. If you think about all the things that are required for us to even exist at all, the odds are truly staggering. Staggering. I mean, calculations indicate that if the strong nuclear force, the force that binds protons and neutrons together in an atom, was stronger or weaker by as little as 5%, life would be impossible. Calculations by physicist Brandon Carter show that if gravity had been stronger or weaker by one part in 1040, then life-sustaining stars like the sun could not exist. This would make life impossible. If the neutron were not 1.001 times the mass of the proton, all protons would have decayed into neutrons or neutrons into protons, and thus life would not be possible. If our Earth was closer or farther from our star, no life. If our atmosphere was composed slightly differently in its percentages of oxygen and nitrogen and carbon, no life. Uh, Physicist Roger Penrose estimated that the chances for all the needed physical and chemical dials that would need to be set just right for life is 1 raised to the 10 raised to the 123. Now, I didn't even write that number up here for you because I don't even understand that number. But supposedly, even if you could write a zero on each separate proton and neutron in each atom in the universe, you would fall down short of writing the figure needed. The chances of life forming on its own are nil. Okay, but some would wonder or say, well, we're the lucky universe out of the bazillion other universes out there. Haven't you seen the Marvel Universe? And There's a multiverse, right? Okay, but there's not really a way to know that, right? Like it's kind of this huge leap of faith to assume some concept that we can't prove and have never seen. But no, it can't be God, right? Definitely not God. No way. Cambridge uh, University astrophysicist Fred Hoyle said this, A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. A common sense interpretation of the facts would agree with Genesis 1. God did it. People often ask, well, if God made this whole universe for human life, didn't he go a little bit overkill? Did he overdo it? Did he need a universe this large with all this excess? Why? That's exactly the point, don't you see? He made a universe that reflects the precision and grandeur and beauty of the creator himself. We were meant to discover how big and beautiful this place is so that we could be awestruck. Even without the aid of a telescope, David said in Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Or Isaiah 40, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. It says he marked off the heavens with a span. It's about this much. The whole known universe, God looks at it and says, ah, yeah, that's about right. And if nature in all of its glory moves you and floors you with a sense of awe and beauty. This is but the works of his fingers. What must he be like is the question you're meant to ask. Charlotte Bronte in her classic novel, Jane Eyre, has Jane Eyre saying this. We know that God is everywhere. But certainly we feel his presence most when his works are on the grandest scale spread before us. And it is in the unclouded night sky where his worlds wheel their silent course that we read clearest his infinitude, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. Looking up, I with tear-dimmed eyes saw the mighty Milky Way, remembering what it was, what countless systems there swept space like a soft trace of light. I felt the might And strength of God. Or as someone else would write. Lord my God when I in awesome wonder. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then what? (laughs) Sings my soul. My Savior God to thee. How great. How great thou art. So what does this mean for us? this year? I don't know. For starters, maybe we should all resolve this year to look at our phones less and the stars more. By our frantic pace of living and incessant habits of viewing, we keep the powerful witness of nature at arm's length. But Christians are called to be people who look. Christians are called to be people who stargaze. The Bible calls us to look to look to the mountains, to the stars, to reorient our perspective in life. Because we are all so prone to worry that God is able to handle just about every other situation out there other than mine. But the Bible uses the magnitude of creation to remind you that God is not overlooking you, and He is not impotent to work. Later in Isaiah 40, which I just read from, this is the very issue for Israel. And God says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is first and God is big. But God is also love. God is love. What makes me say this? Where is love in this passage? Genesis 1. You didn't see the word love mentioned anywhere. You read through it. I don't see love anywhere. But there's four things. Again, largely these are the things that are repeated over and over in the passage that take me here. First is the poetic or song-like qualities of the story. Scholars and commentators debate whether Genesis 1 should be read as poetry or as prose, narrative. And while I essentially think that it's prose, there's an undeniable poetic quality in the structure and the repetition, evening and morning and, and such. You know, it's no wonder that C.S. Lewis had Aslan, the, the lion, god-like character, singing Narnia into existence in his books. Ours is a world born in song. We just sang earlier, this is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. So that's the first thing, the poetic or song-like quality of the, the chapter. But then secondly, you also see at the beginning of the passage something really interesting or a verse that's, um, yeah, it's it's mysterious. You see the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." Again, commentators point out that this hovering is an image of like a mother bird flapping over her nest, stirring up her little birds for flight. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. So here, right at the beginning of creation, you have the Spirit of God stirring, caring for, stirring up new life in creation, like a mother bird almost. And then third, you have this statement over and over, and God saw that it was good. And when you breeze through the passage, it can almost sound like God is going through creation with his clipboard and he's doing a quality control check. You know this? Yep, passes inspection, passes inspection, passes inspection. No, no, no. This becomes much more clear when we get to the seventh day. This is God delighting in and enjoying what he has made. When you finish a meal at the angst barn, you sit back and you say, man, that was good. When you finish a great movie, an incredible piece of music, when you pour a great cup of coffee, you praise it and you enjoy it. And you say, that is good. This is not inspector God in Genesis chapter 1. This is creator God who takes great joy and pleasure from what he's made. It's another reason why I say it points to his love. But then fourth, you notice perhaps the most repeated phrase in the chapter that tells you something about how God made what he made. And what is that? And God said. God created through his word. So what? Why does that matter? And why does that say that he's love? It certainly says something of the power of God's speech, you know. I can hardly get my kids to clean up their room with my words. I speak and I want... You know, results, and it doesn't always happen. But God speaks. Entire galaxies are formed. But there's more to it than this. And the New Testament clues us in as to what this means. We looked at this passage at Christmas time. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And John will go on to tell us that the word of God through which all things were made is the son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. God created through his word, through his son, Jesus. Okay, so what? Why does that mean that God created in love? Let me ask you a question. What was God doing before creation. What was he up to? What was God doing before all this? There's only one, maybe two passages in the Bible that really give you much indication as to what God was up to in eternity past before we made our world. And the one that we definitely get that's most clear tells you this. It's in one of Jesus' prayers. Listen to what he prays. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. What was God doing before the world was made? He was loving. He was a father loving his son through the Spirit. That's what he was doing. He didn't need to create anything to rule over or to have someone else to love. He already had love. And so he made us so that he might spread his love even beyond the infinitely deep fellowship of the Trinity. Now, this is why the Trinity is not just some stiff, confusing doctrine that we have to sign off on as Christians. Was like, oh man, this would be a lot simpler if we didn't have to believe this. This is a beautiful truth that's at the heart of our faith. And this is where the Christian story of our origins takes a very different path from any other option that I can think of. Because, in contrast to the myths of old, creation is now not a violent act where the gods duked it out for control of who would own the planet and who would have the humans for their slaves. And in contrast to the modern narrative, Creation's not a random, loveless accident where love actually means nothing in the end. And it's even in contrast to other strictly monotheistic religions like Islam, where there's a single entity, non triune God, who could not have been eternally loving because in eternity past, there was no one else to love. Now, I can't knock down, absolutely prove that the Christian account of our origins is true. But you should absolutely wish that it is, because it's the only one that says the fundamental thing behind this world, the thing that got it all going in the first place, is not power or chance or greed, but love. It is the only account that says our world is an overflow and a constant communication of the love of God from his eternal fellowship to you. And that means that every sunrise and sunset, every raindrop and snowflake, every autumn breeze and ocean wave serves as an invitation to enter and enjoy the eternal love of God. There's not another story out there on the market like that. Professor Michael Reeves says, so the next time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars and wonder, remember, they are there because God loves Because the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many. And they remain there only because God does not stop loving. Indeed, in the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. In other words, the triune God is a God we can heartily enjoy and enjoy in and through His creation. So where does this leave us today? At the beginning of a new year. Where does God fit into your thinking and planning this year? In your goals and resolutions? Remember, you're on His planet. Not the other way around. Is He the center of your story? Because He is the center of the story. And there's nothing this year... And in this life, over which you can truly say, that is mine. You know, my family, my day off, my vacation, my money, my business. Every breath, every heartbeat is a gift from his loving hand to you. And he didn't just create you so that you could kick back and say, sweet place you got here, God. But to invite you into true and lasting relationship with himself. And to do that, the same word who made all things became flesh and dwelt among us. So that through not just the works of his fingers, but by the work of the cross, he would suffer for your sins so that you could once again, through him, join the song of creation and know the fellowship of love for which you were made. This is our God. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for this word, how it begins, and how it rightly reorients our perspective. Lord, you know we are all prone to drift into a way of thinking that that I am at the center, that we are at the center of of all that happens and that this world and everything in it revolves around me. Thank you for the grace of this passage that tells us that that's not true. And yet tells us that we matter deeply because we were created out of the overflow of your love. Not because you need us, not because you want us to be our slaves, but because you want us to be your sons and your daughters. So help us, Lord, help us this year to put ourselves where we belong and to put you in your rightful place as God. We ask for your help in all these things for you know that we need it.